I just remember sitting in the office and we're like, well, what do we do first? It's like, okay, well, let's set up our email. It's like, well, at least we'll have email, right? So like, so we set up the email um, with the Google apps or whatever. And then you log into your email and it's this funny feeling because nobody even knows your email address. You know, not only do you not have any emails, it's like nobody even knows your email address. You know, you're not getting like no meeting requests, like calendar is completely blank. The email is completely blank. Ground Up, Episode 4. When Jonah Lopin left HubSpot to start his own company, called Cran, he found the obscurity associated with starting anew a bit unsettling. Consider that Lopin was coming from HubSpot, a company that, in that same year that he founded Cran, went public, hosted a user conference with over 10,000 attendees, and was continuing its global expansion. Now he was starting from square one. No emails, no meetings, but he and his co-founder John, they had a product, or at least a really good idea for one. Crayon had originally set out to give marketers and creators the inspiration they needed to build great websites. But along the way, the amount of data Crayon had collected became a much bigger asset than just design and copy inspiration. So what led Crayon's evolution into what it's become today? A suite of marketing and competitive intelligence tools. If the story sounds overly simple, it wasn't. Like any startup fighting for relevance, from that very first email in your inbox to your 100th customer and beyond, it's an uphill battle. This is Cran's story. First, let me say thank you for having me on the show. It's, um, it's, uh, it's an honor to be on the show, and um, good luck with it. You're off to a great start. Um, Thanks. Appreciate uh, you having. Yeah, appreciate you coming on. <laughs> so I learned an interesting nugget about you, Jonah, in that you were homeschooled until high school. <laughs> I was. <laughs> what, what was that like? Um, so being homeschooled. Um, definitely part of my uh, origin story um <laughs> it, it contributed to so i'm a teeny bit on the strange side if you um maybe you can't tell just talk to me on the phone um but yep and being homeschooled probably contributed to that just a little bit or at least didn't help <laughs> um with kind of like smoothing that out but but overall in seriousness um being homeschooled was was awesome and there's a couple things as the big things about it that were positives for me is there you learn some self-motivation through that is that for years like a lot of my formative years anything that I worked on or learned or anything I spent time on was something that I had really had chosen myself because there was never never really and there's probably different styles for homeschooling but my parents were very hands-off with it it's um so they weren't there wasn't like a formal kind of curriculum or structure to it and so it was yeah, so I just had a lot of freedom to choose and kind of pursue the things that I wanted to do. And so I think part of what you learn through that is like, oh, well, I'm doing, I'm doing, I do things because I'm internally kind of intrinsically motivated to do them rather than a parent or a teacher or someone else telling you to do it. And I think that's important. I think I've made, I've kept a lot of that um, as I've gotten older. And, and you never develop any of the weird, uh, you know, in my opinion, there's a ton of weird dynamics that develop around learning in a, like a traditional educational environment where you, you know you're you've got you're doing things for grades or for teachers or you just it's just kind of a lot of funkiness to it that and then kids rebel against that and it becomes more about trying to get kids to behave or follow the rules or it's just it's just not really about learning um in a lot of cases it's about some some funky stuff um 
anyway, so I had an awesome experience um, in the homeschooling years. Uh, but then you chose high school to get back into it, like the most awkward years, <laughs> like <laughs> arguably yeah. in your life. You cho- you know, I'm going to give this public school thing a shot. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think these years might be my most awkward years. <laughs> high school, I was pretty normal. I was relatively, but no, I think um, the big down, the two big downsides of of being homeschooled, in my opinion, I'm not, I don't have like a master's in education or anything like that. But, uh, in my opinion, one of them is like, you don't get really pushed to necessarily to try new things. So like the, the upside is you're always internally motivated. You're like, Oh, this is interesting. I'm going to work on that or whatever. But, but so then that also means that nobody's sitting you down and saying, Hey, you, you should think about learning, you know, math or physics or science or something like that. Whereas, um, or you should read these books. And so you, so you don't get pushed maybe as, as much as you, you should. Um, and, and then the other one is you don't get to meet as many folks as like, you just have kind of less interaction with kind of your peers. Um, there's just fewer people around. Um, and so, yeah, so I wanted to give high school a try and kind of get like, make more, you know, kind of meet more people, um, get to know more people and, and just try, try some new stuff and kind of see what it was like. And I had an awesome experience in high school actually. So. And now you've sort of, uh, become an entrepreneur and pushed yourself into pushing yourself and networking and all those things that, yeah. So I, I guess you didn't really miss out all that much, right? Cause now you're, you're getting, uh, <laughs> you're sort of involved in all those things now. It was um, hard to be tested. So all's <laughs> yeah. well that ends well, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah. we, we can get into like, you know, prior to, to Cran, uh, which I'll ask you about in a sec, you were with HubSpot. So we can, we can get into, uh, some of that a bit later, but how did, uh, I guess, what is Cran for the listeners who might not know? And how did the initial idea, cause you guys have pivoted a bit since, uh, your early days, but how did the initial idea for Cran come about? Yeah. Um, Cran is market intelligence software. So the thesis behind the company is that most businesses out there um, in 2017 have like awesome internal data. And a lot of this thesis is near and dear to your heart and a lot of the um, Databox team. But most most companies are increasingly good at understanding um, how their sales team is performing. Um, they've got their CRM that helps them do that, that, how their marketing campaigns and their website are performing. They've got lots of internal data. But when it comes to understanding what's happening in their market, and you ask most companies, yeah, but what's happening outside the four walls of your business? What's happening with competitors, customers, partners? Most businesses, even in 2017, just don't have a good way of getting at that um, data. And so, so Cran's market intelligence software that helps companies, um, you know, orient and act uh, based on uh, market data. Uh, right, and it's, and it's really yeah, yeah. T- typically really expensive and hard to. To, to really get targeted, right? Uh, for for that type of intelligence, uh, traditionally, but but you guys have seemed to sort of simplify that, and so that like that that's who Cran is today. But when you guys first started out, you were sort of a design inspiration tool, um, right? Like so, so th- things where it was a little more lean uh, when you guys first launched. What three four years ago? Right. Yeah. Um, so we've. We founded the company um, in in 2014, and the initial, the kind of the seeds of our current thesis were there. So, like the initial idea was that businesses should have a better way of pulling in kind of information and best practices from outside the four walls of their company. That companies should should do a should be doing a better job 
of of kind of looking externally and pulling data in. But our initial kind of focus and our our take on that was we were going to help was really a design kind of aspect to it where we said um look at the and you know a lot of this is because like you said i was i was early i was the sixth employee at hubspot i was on the management team there for almost six years and and so we well lots of hubspot customers tens of thousands of hubspot customers were working on the corporate website they're always trying to figure out we've got to redesign the corporate website or build a new landing page or kind of like design a section of our site. And how do they figure that out? How do they figure out? So there's $21 billion a year that's spent, you know, every year just in America um, where businesses are working on the corporate website. And so we thought let's help them make better decisions about how to design and build um, when, when they're working on that. Let's get let's basically own, let's build a product that helps support the ideation inspiration kind of process that feeds into those corporate design projects. Um, so that's where we started and that's, we kind of built the first product we built called Cran Inspire. And that was the, the, um, the sort of the thrust of that, of that product. And I remember using that too, when it, when it first launched and it was, okay. it was, it was amazing because at the time I was working for an agency. So not only are you constantly looking for new ways to market yourselves and launch new pages, but obviously for all of your clients, right? So this gave you like an, an easy way. Well, how are other people in, in the space doing it? Um, you know, scroll through pricing pages or sign up pages and see how other people are doing it. So it was great. Um, and it was, it, it was a cool tool. And, uh, I think at the time, uh, and, and you've written about this too, like the story that you guys were telling, uh, you probably heard that response a lot, right? Like, oh, this is, a, this is a cool little tool. Um, but obviously you, you guys wanted to, to be more than that. Right. So, and you've talked about how the, the, the importance of the brand story is sometimes more important than the product itself, but that's just, that's just how it goes. So, uh, what? what was the response i guess in those early days and how how did you toy i guess with the brand story in order to to really get people to understand like the bigger application for it yeah it's a good question so that was an interesting sort of period and transition for the company um but so yeah so we we went out there and built this cran inspire thing um which is still out there by the way uh, so you can go to cran.co slash inspire it's still great yep. I, I use it all and, the time. and it is it's it's still like i would argue it's still like one of the best um, products on the web in terms of figuring out what you're going to build. Like if you're going to work on a section of your website or build a new pricing page or new testimonials page, there's not really anything better out there. Um, and, and, but so we, so we raised a, an angel round of capital and to pursue this idea and, and we thought of it as really a community site. We wanted to get every marketer on planet earth to, kind of come to Cran Inspire first before they went off and, and um, designed something or built something. And, and so we, we thought of it as like a Pinterest for marketing or a house for marketing, um, if you're familiar with the site house. And so we went off and started to build that. We indexed um, tens of millions and, and now hundreds of millions of pages. Um, and then we kind of tagged and built an interface where you could search and um, kind of collaborate, build, sort of collections and, and, and things like that. And the response was good that so we signed up. I think we had signed up now over 50,000 people, but, um, after a year we had like maybe 30, 35,000 or something like that. And the response was good, but it wasn't, 
what we'd hoped for, frankly. Um, when you go back and read about companies like Pinterest or House or these like kind of community consumer style um, kind of community sites, you really look for really, really rapid growth and kind of hyper growth and, and hitting some inflection point in the first year where I think House had, I don't know, half a million users in the first six months and a million and a half in 18 months or something like that. And we weren't really on that type of trajectory. And even though there's an order of magnitude fewer marketers than there are, say, homeowners or just folks who might use Pinterest, it's a smaller audience. But still, um, if you hope to get a really massive kind of community site off the ground, you look for some resonance and that's reflected in a really like kind of hyper growth curve. And we didn't have that. Um, and so we had, and so we still felt like, well, if we invested enough, like if we had a big enough engineering team, we really fine tuned all these features and really got the experience right. And we spent enough money on marketing. Like we still believe that we could get, you know, a critical mass of, of marketers to kind of join this community and, and, um, and benefit from it. But, but we felt like that's a pretty capital efficient business to build. And we're not sure how long that's going to take. And we were just really struggling with that. So that brings us to about a year after we founded the company where we had, so we had 35,000 users or something like that for Crand Inspire. And we really were wrestling with that. Like, what do we do? Um, and I can talk through the next phase if that's interesting. Yeah. Before we go any farther, though, I want I want to ask you about. You mentioned earlier you were employee number six um, yep. at HubSpot. Coming from HubSpot, that grew into this massive, you know, tech giant that's now, you know, global offices. Uh, the the headcount <laughs> is far far <laughs> greater than six, right? Uh, yeah, but it's but thousands, the, yeah. they they've they've grown in insane amounts um, in the past ten years. So what was it like to go from you know the HubSpot ecosystem where you know especially the guys that were there, the guys and girls who were there early were were sort of like celebrities in the inbound marketing community to go from that to founding your own company, and you've written about this before about toiling in obscurity and what that first day is like. Can, yeah. you t- can you talk through that, what that transition is like going from HubSpot to day one at your own startup? Yeah, totally. And now I can share my experience. And I don't know, I don't know how um, similar it is for, for other folks, but I have this vivid memory of like really the first day um, that my co-founder John um, and I were in our office and we uh, founded the company. Um, and he and I were classmates together at Sloan, and we'd known each other for a decade. And John actually, um, a few years after uh, Sloan, he married my sister. Uh, and they had a couple of kids, so he's my brother-in-law. So anyway, it's just the two of us. And we founded the company. And I just remember sitting in the office, and we're like, well, what do we do first? And it's like, okay, well, let's set up our email. It's like, well, at least we'll have email, <laughs> right? So, like, so we set up the email um, with the Google Apps or whatever, and then you log into your email and it's this funny feeling because nobody even knows your email address. You know, not only do you not have any emails, it's like nobody even knows your email address. You know, you're not getting like no meeting requests, like calendar is completely blank. The email is completely blank. And then like fast forward to today, it's like obviously hundreds of emails a day to packed calendars and things like that. But that's an, it's a, it's a funny feeling to go from to kind of sort of zero um, in your inbox and on your calendar from you know, when you work at a company like HubSpot, and HubSpot's not alone. There's lots of, obviously, lots of companies that grow quickly and um, and and are successful. But when you work at a company like that, 
I think it's natural to sort of um, attribute some of the company's kind of halo of success to yourself. And you feel like, gosh, aren't I important? And <laughs> everybody wants to talk to me and <laughs> email me and meet with me. And it's like, well, and it's like, yeah, no, of course it's HubSpot, but it's, it's really me too. And, um, you know, and you feel, but then what you realize when that's all stripped away and you go and start something new is that, like HubSpot's still famous and popular and whatever, but you've got to rebuild that if you want to build, if you want to build something big and something something meaningful. Um, you've really got to build that from the ground up, and and I think that that's. I personally feel like that's, it's kind of a good thing in the early days of a startup to be left alone, and you have some. I think obscurity is your friend in the early days because. You need time to kind of you need that silence to and kind of tranquility to reflect and figure out what you want to build. Where how can you create meaningful value and what can you build? And um, so it's a good thing, but I think that for people who are <laughs> um, motivated by being uh, celebrities or being popular or, or um, who thrive on that, and once that's stripped away, I think it can be it can be tough. You've got to be ready to face that sort of a period of obscurity i think if you're gonna if you're gonna do a startup and surely there's probably a lot of opinions right during those early days and and this is something else you've talked about the idea of get picked by customers um what do you what do you mean by that i think i lifted that phrase from seth godin by the way so if you google seth like seth godin wrote something about that that stuck with me where he was making a point that um getting picked by anyone is hard. Like if you go pitch a journalist, it's like, Oh, you should write about this story or cover our company or our product. It's hard. It's hard to convince them. Like, why should they care? Why is that story important? If you want to pitch an investor, Oh my gosh, <laughs> that can be really hard because they're very uh, skeptical and they've got lots of other options. And how are you going to convince them to invest in your company? It's hard to recruit employees too. I mean, it's like, you know, and you go and, if your pitch is like, hey, you should you know, take a pay cut and leave your cushy job and come and help us build something that's unproven. Um, and all those things are hard and they're all worthwhile. But the, but the most important one, in my opinion, um, for a startup to get right is to get picked by customers, meaning that you, you pitch them your product and they choose to pay you money or attention for it. Um, and they spend time with it. Because if you get that right, all the other things follow. Like if you're good at pitching journalists and they write your story or whatever, that's great, but that's going to fade away. And if you if you can attract investment dollars, but you haven't created value for customers and you don't have a business model, that fades away too. And it's those are all failure states. I think the only success state is where customers choose to give you attention or money um, in exchange for what you're doing. And and if you can get that right and you know you, you're cashing checks from customers in exchange for the product that you've built, then who cares if an investor doesn't believe in you or a, a journalist doesn't want to write about you? Who cares? <laughs> you just keep cashing those checks and and your company's off to a good start. And and I think that's that's important. It's just a kind of a true north that you can anchor to that says, let's create value for customers and get them to give us something of value in exchange get that right don't worry about anything else it's kind of reminiscent a bit of like the base camp model 
they never really raised significant funding. Yeah. Didn't, didn't care to grow at, you know, these, you know, these insane rates that obviously would be required if, you know, if you took a, a, a ton of funding and they've kind of grown at their own pace over what the past 15 years, you know, yeah. one of the originals and, and really the, the B2B SaaS space. So, um, they've kind of done it on their own and, and yeah, really, really focused on the, the customer and the, and the use case. And, and I mean, now look, um, so that, that kind of, that's a good segue. That brings us into like what you were just saying before, uh, where you were like a year or so in, uh, you had, you know, gained some initial traction with the Cran Inspire tool. Um, but in looking to scale, you were like, what do we do next? So uh, obviously the, the, the Cran that we know today is much different. So, um, yeah, I guess like how, how did that, how did that happen? Like what went into, uh, sort of the evolution? What was the aha moment where you felt sort of, uh, uh, a change coming on and, you know, more importantly, like knew the direction on where you should take it. Yeah. So we, we, even from the early days of Crayon, where we were really focused on this Pinterest for marketing kind of design community, we, even in those early days, we, part of our story was that we were going to build a market intelligence and competitive intelligence um, system on top of this core platform. And the reason for that was like we wanted to help someone, for instance, use Cran Inspire to say, show me all of HubSpot's designs, just to pick a pick a company, or show me all of Databox's designs. Now, but one of the issues though is that Databox owns probably has a Pinterest has a Twitter page, right? And that Twitter banner is probably designed by Databox, but it's on the Twitter domain. So we had this issue that we solved kind of very in in kind of the deep structure of the product that was this idea of cross-domain kind of company ownership. And so from the beginning, we said, well, if we've, if we've kind of triangulated all of HubSpot or, or Databox's designs all around the web, even off of their website, then why couldn't we just let you sort of track Databox or track HubSpot? And anytime one of their designs changed around the web, we would let you know. And so we were like, oh, that's interesting. We're not going to do that from day one, but someday we'll, maybe we'll do that um, where you'd be able to kind of follow follow or track a company and so where we got to um well, so i think i said we, so we we raised um angel round of capital we burned about half that cash we had thirty five thousand users which wasn't better than zero but not you know a million um not where we wanted to be and so we said why don't we do a test around this competitive intelligence um idea that we've had for a while and so the way we did the test was a really good way to do a test. I highly recommend it. Um, you call up some potential customers, which is what I did, and I essentially said, we can give you um, really deep, uh, granular um, information on what's happening in your market and your competitive set. Um, is that interesting? And of course, they're like, yes, that's interesting. And I'm like, okay, that's going to be you know, 500 bucks a month, or I don't remember what price I started with. And so the first two people I pitched it to said, okay. And they gave me their credit card numbers. Um, and so it was kind of funny, actually, because I like those first two calls, I remember getting off the phone and I'm like, I asked my co-founder, I'm like, what do I do with the credit card number now that I have it? Like, how do I charge it? Or <laughs> uh, so you don't know how to do that. Um, but but yep, so but the feedback early on though, which surprised us but was really important to um to the to the product that we're that we've built, 
the feedback was that the design aspects of what these companies, what was happening in, in companies in your competitive set was actually the least interesting type of data that we had. What they were much more interested in was, are these companies um, hiring in new geographies or meaningfully changing the structure of their team? Are they changing their, are they launching new features in their product or changing their roadmap? Are they changing their pricing? Are they updating their messaging and positioning? Um, are they making new investments or changing their content strategy or their marketing strategy? So there's like much, they really were interested in a much more comprehensive view into what their competitors were doing. And we're already capturing all that data. We just had only been surfacing the design related data in Cran Inspire, but in the underlying platform, we had really rich um, data on millions of companies. And so, right. You're so sitting, we essentially you're sitting on all this data. Yeah, we had tons of data. We just, we just had never really productized um, the experience of consuming that. And so when those initial customers asked for that, we were like, holy crap, that makes total sense. We're like, yeah, great idea. Um, yeah, we can do that. And, and so then it's been a, and then the next, you know, the next sort of six months was a, a period of um, really watching closely, like our customers delighted by this type of data. How do they use it? Um, and how do we productize that experience? And and just following the credit card numbers, frankly, just um, kind of getting using that idea of getting picked by customers as a true north is what kind of led us down the path to realize that we're onto something with the potential to be big, and and millions of companies should should be investing in a better way to understand what's happening in their market. Um, that must have been a challenge too earlier on, right? Because especially as you're calling potential customers, like how did you balance? What they're, I mean, they could ask for the world, right? And you can never fully know, like, what would somebody pay for? You know, what, what would be a, a minimum vial product that people would find useful enough to pay for? And then you can continue, obviously, iterating and adding features. And then what's like, you know, what, what what's table stakes? And then what's a nice to have? So how have you sort of balanced that? Oh, we would like this. We, we would like to see that. And like, how did you sort of land upon, like, what the product you know what the table stakes were, and like what the what the product was that people would actually you know pay for. Yeah, there's two concepts there. Um, one is I think it's tempting as a as a founder or a product, someone building an early product, to um, to sort of pitch it to a potential customer as well. If we build these things, will you you know how much would you pay for it, or would would you pay this for it if we if we built these features, I think you want to flip that around. And what you want to say is we'll deliver this value to you and it's going to cost X. Um, and so what do you say? And get, get the payment, get the customer, um, get them to pay you and then deliver that value. And it, um, because if they're like, there's a, you really have to discount it when someone says that they will pay you in the future for something, if you build it, and it's just people, mislead themselves or they're not clear um, it's just it's easy to get that wrong so i think you want to actually get the get the customer get the payment um versus you know before you build before you really build the features um that's one the other one is my my co-founder john has this concept of chiseling the early product with a chainsaw and what he means is like the analogy is around like an ice sculpture which neither of us is ice sculptors but 
but the, and actually I don't even really know if this is how ice sculptures are made, but the way we think ice sculptures are made is that initially you, you kind of like carve the rough shape out with a chainsaw and then you do all the chiseling and polishing and fine tuning to make it look beautiful. But the idea is in the early days of a product, you should be able to kind of chisel out the product with a chainsaw and people should still be really happy with it. And if they're not, and you convince yourself that it's like, oh, well, if we just polish this edge and we add this little feature and we do these couple things, then it's really they're really going to like it. You might be playing the wrong game. It's a never uh, ending. It's, yeah, it's never ending. Yeah, I mean, you want to be in the blue ocean if you've read that book as a startup where you're really innovating along. You don't want to be um, kind of trying to get to feature table stakes with some mature product that requires a ton of feature polish. You want to be solving an important problem in an innovative way where just your basic solution to that problem, customers will come out of the woodwork to pay you for that because there's no other way for them to get it. Um, right. Yeah. And and it's like Dr- Dropbox can reach out to me tomorrow. I'll, I'll continue paying for Dropbox forever until there's something, I mean, unless there's like a better option in, in 10 years or something like that. But if they reached out to me tomorrow and said, hey, is there anything more you'd like to see? I mean, I can think of some stuff. Right? Sure. But I'm going to continue paying for the product. So yeah, that, that's, that's a tough, that's sort of a tough line to balance. Like what, what are the, what are the table stakes? Like you said, get the customer to, to pay for it. Um, we're gonna have to fact check that ice sculpture sort of, if that's, <laughs> if, if that's how sculptors really, but don't but I, burst my bubble though. Cause <laughs> I need to keep using that. So. that. It's a great analogy, but yeah, that, that's a tough line to balance to figure out what that rough shape is that people will pay for. And then what's like the nice to haves that everybody would, like I said, everybody would always want more. Um, yeah. So like, you know, during this time, like you said, you're calling customers, like how has your day-to-day sort of evolved? Like early on, you must have been sales, service, marketing. Uh, what, what, what is that like to go in just three years? Um, like how has your role, you know, as a founder changed? It's changed a lot um, and it'll continue to change a lot. So that's, there's probably some good cliche saying out there that like the only <laughs> constant is change or something like that. But it's really true. But in those early days, um, so so kind of after this sort of watershed transition from the Cran Inspire community was continuing to grow, but not as fast as we'd like to, wow, we've got this much broader market intelligence product and a, a couple of customers are paying us real money for that and really valuing it. And then and then what do you do? How do you start to how do you start to grow that? And so what I was um doing the initial sale, doing the early sales. So I was, um, you know, on the phones kind of showing potential customers, the product and, uh, and, um, and, and then also delivering, doing all the kind of customer success and setup and, um, working with customers after they'd signed up. Um, and like you said, I was working on marketing. So trying to figure out, so we had a massive pool of, um, and we continue to have, you know, th- you know, thousands of people sign up for, uh, Cran in our free products every week. So we have a, we had a big pool to sell to, but you still got to do some marketing to kind of figure out who wants to raise their hand around and who's interested in this. And, you know, I don't know, like many founders, um, I'm actually uh, pretty, uh, crappy at all those jobs. <laughs> I'm not that good at marketing. I'm not that good at sales. <laughs> I'm, that, I'm actually pretty good at customer success. Cause I sort of, I have a consulting background, but, um, but you've got to be good enough to just to do the basics and and kind of to get things off the ground. But it's definitely like you, you feel you you just constantly feel like you're not 
doing a great job on any one of those dimensions. But it's similar to this concept of chiseling with a chainsaw. That's like, yeah, but you shouldn't need the top tier sales guy or gal to get the early sales. And you shouldn't need the best customer success person in the world to, to make a customer happy. Like you should be able to kind of chisel those things out with a chainsaw and get them roughly right and have it essentially work. And then when you start to put specialists and, and build a really specialized world-class team around each of those functions, things just work better and better and better. But if they're not working when you do them at 70%, they're probably not going to work when you do them at, you know, 110%. If you're, if, you know, if the fundamentals are off somewhere. So yeah, I, I wouldn't, I'm not like, look, at, you wouldn't want to go back and relive those six or eight months. I was a really busy man. Um, but, uh, but yeah, things have changed a lot. So now we've got awesome folks in all those seats um, and we're building teams around around each of those functions yeah and you have a pretty interesting principle that you uh that you have right in 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 considering like how to grow the team and scale the team and, and who to hire um can you can you talk about that yeah i think um and as you can see i lift all my good ideas from from <laughs> elsewhere but um netflix is um has a this kind of famous culture code or cult, culture deck um which you can you can Google and find and and it's quite thoughtful actually if you just kind of read through it and the thing that's cool about it is there's a lot of it's not just these kind of highfalutin like values that they have a lot of really tactical examples um, and and a lot of kind of rubber meets the road type of stuff. One of the concepts though that was in there that which we at HubSpot we spent a lot of time talking about was this concept of every person that you add to your team should be better than the average of the people that's already there. Because if they're not like, so I was a physics major, but you don't need to be a physics major to understand this. If you add people who are below the average on your team, then by definition, the overall average quality level on your team is declining. And if you, if you pull that too far, the quality of your team just goes down and down and down. So the only way to get the quality of your team to be flat or go up is to have every person you add be better than the average uh, that's already there. And so as a concept, that's, it's probably one of my top one or two like hiring principles is like, if you can't, if you, if you, if you can't honestly make the case that a candidate is potentially better than anybody else who's at the company, like if they don't at least have that potential to be the best person on the team in a year, um, then you shouldn't hire them. And we've really stuck to that at Cran, and I stuck to that. I hired hundreds of people at HubSpot. Um, it's a really important principle. Yeah, that's uh, that's super interesting, and it, it really starts with. I mean, if if you carry that all the way from the beginning, that starts with you, right? So you're, you're trying to look for people that have the potential to be better than you are. Yeah, and I've done that, and so our, you know, almost everybody here is better than me. Uh, <laughs> you know, hopefully, it, you know, but um, yeah, you you've got to do that, and. And it's easy to, I think one of the huge mistakes that people make and when they hire is it's just hard to keep the quality bar high. It's just hard. And, and it's easy to convince yourself. It's like, oh, well, they, but they seem pretty good or they're good relative to the other people I've met recently, or there's all kinds of um, weird things that happen where, but, and I think one of the good ways to avoid that is to just look around at your company or your team and say, who's the best person? Like, or who's the top, you know, couple best people where they're just awesome. And then you look at this person you're just interviewed and it's like, are they potentially better than that lady or that guy? And if you can't honestly see that they could be, then you just don't hire them. 
So how, how many people are you guys now? We've got 22-ish now. We'll be almost 30 by the end of the year. Nice. And uh, Ellie Meerman, an old, uh, an old friend of mine and also former HubSpotter, she, she's uh, running marketing over at Cran now. Is that right? She, she is. She's just awesome. I couldn't be a bigger fan. She, uh, we worked together for, um, since the early HubSpot days too. So yeah, she's great. Yeah, the HubSpot alumni network is, is a powerful one. And you guys yep, uh, our, tend to stick pretty close. <laughs> we do. Um, our our head of sales, um, David Donlin, also was uh, one of the early um, HubSpot sales folks and then ran enterprise sales at HubSpot. Um, and he's just world-class as well, building a really remarkable team um, on the sales side. So where are you guys at today? Like, What would you say, you know, sort of to wrap here, Like, what's the main challenge you guys are facing today? There's a couple things. Um, so one is around recruiting, especially engineering and product. It's just the the market is um, the 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 engineering and product stars are just really in demand, um, and we've got a lot of appetite for great people there, and it's hard to find them. Um, so that's one. The other one is sort of more specific to market intelligence and the product and creating value for customers, which is. So we track anything and everything related to the digital footprint of a company, okay? Which by definition, so we track hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of sources um, from patent search to website changes to um, SEC filings and um, hire, you know, positions they're hiring for, and et cetera. And which is immensely valuable because our customers want a comprehensive view of what's happening in their market. But the challenge though, which is, um, which we've created for ourselves is how do you help customers zero in on the most important, you know, insights or things that have happened, um, out of a very large set of data, um, because everybody's busy. And so we run the risk of overwhelming people. And so we're, we're always trying to do a better job at that. And then the next, the next layer on top of that is like, okay, now we've got the insights and we know like, here's the seven most important things that have happened across our competitive set in the past week. What do we do about that? Like, how do we translate an insight into an actionable, like a decision or an action that the company's going to take? Um, and we're just helping, we're trying to help our customers understand that playbook of how do you translate market intelligence into action? And, and it's, we're early in that. And it's, we're, Honestly, back in 2007, when in the early, early HubSpot days, most businesses just didn't know the inbound marketing playbook. They didn't know what to do. It's like, oh, now I have a blog, but what do I do with it? Now I have social media accounts. What do I do? Like, how do I make all these pieces work together? Um, and, and fast forward to today, most people understand that. Most businesses understand social media, landing pages, and blogging. Um, but in market intelligence is a, is, is sim- in 2017 very similar to what inbound marketing was in 2007. Is people are just just starting to like say, okay, now that we can get all this data, what do we do with it? How do we make it actionable? How do we translate that into ROI? Um, so that's the other thing we're just really wrestling with and helping our customers figure out. Some interesting cross marketing opportunities between Cran and Databox because we have a, a similar, you know, we're, we're building out similar. Uh, solutions and, and, and marketing uh, initiatives around that. Like, all right, I have this data. I've collated it in one place. You know, how, how do I turn that exactly what you said into action? 
right? Um, totally. So yeah, maybe we'll have to take that offline. Let's uh, do it. But but this Jonah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for being so open uh, and, and sharing so much about about Cran. Uh, and I'm probably going to be using that chainsaw reference now. I'm going to get a lot of mileage out of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so 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 thanks for that one. But yeah, it was a lot of fun having you on, Jonah. Thanks for thanks for coming by. Oh, thanks. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. And uh, talk soon. 